Last Wednesday at prayer meeting, fellowship meal and prayer meeting, the question was asked, when we pray, what exactly are we praying for? And what do we expect our prayers will accomplish? More or less, it was a wide-ranging discovery, and I see heads nodding. Implied in that question is, do we expect all those who are ill uh, will recover because of our prayers, or does God even want all of those people to uh, recover? And so on... um, Friday, I'm reading uh, Tim Challey's blog, and Randy Alcorn had his own take on that question. And he was basically saying, no, God God wants us to pray for everybody, but he does not intend to heal everybody we pray for. Think about the Apostle Paul. I mentioned him being called up into heaven last week in my sermon. And that because of the exceeding greatness of his vision, he was given a thorn in his side, right? To keep him from boasting. And he prayed three times that that thorn would be taken away from him. And it was not. And he stopped praying about it. He accepted God's will on that. You'll remember that his beloved Timothy had ongoing stomach problems. Paul... I'm sure prayed for Timothy. I'm sure he laid hands on Timothy. Timothy was not healed. Paul said, take wine for your stomach, Timothy. It's, it's a, a minor form of practicing medicine at that. You know, it's, uh, it's taking what man can do to alleviate the suffering. Remember, of course, that Luke and we're going through Acts written by who is called the beloved physician Luke. God uses doctors in man's life. And remember one last thing, and I didn't write this portion down, so let me see if I can remember what it was. You know, you should always write these things down, you know. But the way I write a sermon, it only gets written once. Then things get written in the margin. And if I don't write it down, it's, uh, I, I say, you'll remember this, Mike. No, I didn't. If it comes to me, I'll say. Anyway, do we expect God to affirmatively answer our every prayer? Or is there another purpose for our prayers? Once again, we turn to Scripture today to see what the early church apostles, disciples, early followers of Jesus, who actually knew Him, talked with Him, and ate with Him, expected of God when they prayed. And it's just the luck of the draw that this one was coming up after our Wednesday night prayer. Luck of the draw. Did you see that? No, that's providence. Providence of the Scripture addressing Something we talked about just this very week. Last study, uh, last week, our study was in Acts 12, uh, 6 through 11. But I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 12 to bring us right up to where we are today. So, chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And that's the first point I want to bring out. Earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Continuing on. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And going on to what we read and studied last week, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish that the Jewish people were expecting. And it's interesting that Jewish people were expecting him to be killed. They wanted it, and they were expecting it. I like that part. Today we are looking at the next seven verses, Acts 12, 12-17. As usual, I'm going to read them through, and then we'll go through it verse by verse, and hopefully point by point. When he realized this, that, uh, that it was not a dream... He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And there's not a lot here, by the way. I would have broken it down into a little bit less than seven verses, but... uh, We can get through it. Verse 12 says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now there's a few things to see in this verse alone. When Peter comes to himself, he goes to the house of Mary. Now Mary, the mother of John Mark, was a wealthy widow. Uh, She had a large house, big enough to have been, it is believed, the site of the upper room where the Last Supper took place. Remembering, of course, that there were upwards of a hundred people 
Well, upward, it would hold upwards of 100 people. Let's just put it that way. And now those who claim, and I noticed this was an interesting point that a commentator made, those who claim that the early Christians were socialists, going back to the story of Barnabas laying, uh, selling land and laying at the feet, and at some point it says they sold all they had. Well, that was hyperbole, a Jewish expression. It was not all they had and lay at their feet. Those who claim that the uh, early Christians were socialists should explain why Mary, the mother of John Mark, was still wealthy and had a large house. Uh, because she does. The scripture does not tell us this explicitly. But as owning such a large place, uh, such a place with a large upper room, she made it available as a home church. Um, we suspect that because the disciple, the disciples, the um, early Christians, went to her house to pray for Peter. It was not the only home church in the area because it could hold maybe a hundred people. There were what five to ten thousand people in the early church. There was no building in Jerusalem for the Christians to meet for their services. They did not go to the temple. They did not go to the synagogue for their Lord's Day services or for their home church. They or for their church. They went to homes to hold their church services in. As I've said before, a church is not a building, but a community of like-minded believers. A building for a church is very nice. We are nice. It is nice that we can meet here. Actually, my house is a little bit more intimate. If we had another 200 people in here, this would be a very nice building for our church. But a building is not necessary. It is a luxury for a church. We can use the first century church as an example. Though the Christian church was new, the idea of a building for religious service, uh, services was not. 1,500 years before the uh, Christian church began, uh, the Jews were meeting in a tabernacle in the wilderness that God gave the dimensions and the ways to build. Uh, 800 years after that, Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem to God, also built to God's specifications. Uh, AD 60, 65, Herod built, rebuilt the temple, and the temple that Jesus knew was called Herod's temple, and I have not seen if God specified how that one would be built. I, it just occurs to me as I'm standing up here that uh, that would be interesting to know, but I think that Herod built it to his own specifications, which is something to think of. That the early Christians did not need a dedicated church building should be of note to us. Uh, Luke here points out that Mary also was the mother of John Mark, asked to identify her, but at this time of the writing, at the time before this writing, Mary would have been known as, uh, John Mark would have been known as the son of Mary. Mary was more prominent than John Mark was. But now by the time of this writing, in uh, AD 63 or so, Luke is trying to put things in order and show you that the well-known John Mark, uh, his mother was Mary and owned this house. John Mark, of course, is known as the author of the Gospel of Mark, 
He shows up in his own gospel, they believe, as the anonymous young man at Jesus' arrest and transport from the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 51-52 says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And that would be because the arrest took place in the middle of the night. John Mark was already asleep, threw on a linen cloth. So he was only dressed in his linen cloth, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, John Mark does not say who that person was, but he knows the story rather well, and it is very much suspected that that was John Mark Mark, telling a detail that only he would know about the arrest of Jesus. That's our introduction to Mark, but it's not all we see of him in Scripture. John Mark was the young cousin of Barnabas, and we've seen Barnabas a couple of times, the son of encouragement. John Mark was his young cousin and accompanied the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. It was Mark's youth and inexperience that caused him to leave the missionary work, ultimately causing a rift between Barnabas and Paul that was not healed for a number of years. Barnabas had wanted to include Mark on a later missionary outreach, and Paul refused. But by the end of his life, in the last letter Paul ever wrote, that we know of, of course, And that we know of as 2 Timothy. Paul said of John Mark in verse 11. I didn't write the chapter down. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry. It's good for Mark and for all of us that God is a God of second chances and Mark didn't go down in, in the Bible as having left Paul to fend for himself, but instead at the end of Paul's life, Paul sees that he is useful. The end of verse 12 says that in the house of Mary, quote, many were gathered together and were praying, but again, what were they praying for? And did they expect an answer to their prayers? Verse 13 says, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. The word here um, that is translated door of the gateway um, can mean a lot of different things, okay? But it primarily does mean door or gateway. So you can see that the translators have that one covered by saying the door of the gateway. It can also mean a gatehouse. An outbuilding, we know what a gatehouse is, a building out. So we don't know which it really means, but the ESV, at least my version, said it was the door of the gateway. The name Rhoda of this young girl means rosebush or um, rosebud. Uh, it's quite a common name, but it was also a common name for a slave. And when they say a young girl here, a lot of people think she was either a young servant of the household a young member of the church, or a slave. But that's the last choice of most people who are thinking it. They think that she was either a member of uh, Mary's household or a young member of the church. 
at any rate, whatever her status, she is a Christian and familiar with the leaders of the church. One, because I always look up the names, you know, in Bible Hub to see how many, what the different things are. You know, one was a young girl, one was said a young servant, one said, one said a damsel. I like that. Uh, she was a damsel. I, I like that uh, translation. Actually, two. Young's literal translation also had the word damsel in there. So I guess we're going to have to look up and see what damsel actually means. Verse 14 says, Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. This is an event that Luke relates with humor, and I've heard it said that uh, people in the early church repeated it with gusto. They enjoyed this story of uh, Peter being left stand, standing and knocking at the door. To Peter, however, it was not nearly as humorous at the time. Just having been released from prison under mysterious circumstances, he did not know if his escape had yet been discovered and if the Roman army had begun searching for him by then, which would be a bad thing indeed. Someone out in the middle of the night banging on a door or a gate loud enough to be heard, remember, inside a large house filled with a number of people from the church praying and probably out loud meant that he was really hammering on the gate. It would be enough to attract the attention of either neighbors or the authorities. The servant girl, Rhoda, though, after answering the door, in her excitement and joy, leaves Peter standing outside while she ran in to spread the happy news. Verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, the gathered church did not believe Rhoda, which leads you to think that they were not even praying for Peter's deliverance. Okay? They didn't believe he was there. So we have, we have two thoughts here. Either they were not praying for Peter's deliverance. Or they did not believe God would answer their prayers. Now I will take either of those answers as the possibility. But they did not think that it was remotely possible that Peter was out of jail. So what were they praying for then if they weren't praying for Peter's release? One commentator suggests that they were praying that Peter's death would cause him no torment. You know, that uh, God would comfort him in this time. When uh, asked the question in our prayer meeting, what do we pray for? You know, and we were talking about illness. So, do we pray about God's miraculous healing? Yes. Wisdom and skill for the treating doctors? That God's will would be done? That God would turn our will to be in accord with God's? My answer to all these questions is yes, I think that's what we are praying for. And in the case of these, this church praying... We pray for all those things, I think. We pray for a miraculous healing. And do we actually believe that we are going to get a miraculous healing? I don't know that I always do. We, 
in our prayer meeting, as I keep saying, we're batting 100%, but Debbie's relative who had pancreatic cancer. And we just recently heard he has no more cancer. Pancreatic cancer is a bad thing. I mean, it's a really... There are any number of bad illnesses, but pancreatic cancer is right up there. Did I really think the pancreatic cancer would be taken away as I'm praying? No, I don't think so. We pray for it. We really expect a cure to pancreatic cancer. I don't know. But we, we pray for the miracle. We pray for the doctors. We pray for the person going through it for a positive attitude. We pray for all of these things. And I don't know what if we're, we're expecting the outcome that we get all of the time. So what were those Christians gathered in prayer actually praying about, if not for Peter's release? Okay, Probably protection for the church. Uh, They were afraid that now, with Peter gone, there would be the authorities coming down even harder on the church. Remember that the whole reason that Peter was seized by Agrippa was... Agrippa was going after the leaders of the church instead of a general crackdown on 10,000 people in Jerusalem. What he was looking to do was to decapitate, in more ways than one here, decapitate the church and Peter and spread the Christians out. So the protection for the church, probably protection for themselves. Mercy for Peter. What else? Probably everything they could think of, right? When we go to prayer in our prayer meetings, whatever comes to mind is what we pray for. Still and all, after all of this prayer, when Rhoda tells them that Peter is standing outside, they don't believe her. You're out of your mind, they said. But she keeps insisting, and they, and they responded to her it is his angel. Now, this is a Jewish thought. The Jews believe that every person is born and given a guardian angel to watch over them. The guardian angel would guide and protect their human charge while they're alive. Uh, it's what we think of as a guardian angel when we talk about it. Uh, but also, they were thought to sometimes resemble those that they protect. Okay? Just... This is Jewish thought. This is not scripture. Uh, It's not Old Testament. It's it's nothing. It's it's just Jewish thought. So, verse 16 goes, But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. While the conversation continues on in sight, Peter didn't know what else to do. Okay, He has nowhere else to go. This is where the church is meeting. He's already, he probably went the quickest place he could go as it was. So knowing not anything else to do, he stands at the door and continues knocking on it. Finally, those inside go to the door to check out Rhoda's story. They open the door to find him standing there and they were amazed, it says. Now, if you, if you're like me, you wonder if Peter, um, the weathered, rough-spoken fisherman didn't have some choice words to share about being left outside knocking on a door in the middle of the night. 
But if he did, scripture does not record them. So we just have to surmise. Immediately on seeing Peter standing there in the flesh, all those gathered broke out into excited talk. Now, scripture doesn't say that they broke out into excited talk, but verse 17 says, motioning to them with his hand to be silent. So there is noise going on. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. As I said, there's so much clamor that Peter has to hold up his hands to quiet them. Was it a two-handed? I don't know. I'll bet. He fills them in on his release from prison and asks them to pass this on to James and the brothers. And by the brothers, we're going to assume he means the apostles here. Now, by this, we can surmise it. Remember, when Peter had left, the other Apostles were still in Jerusalem. Peter went off to preach in Caesarea and Joppa and much like. But now he's the only apostle apostle in Jerusalem. The other apostles have apparently now begun their missionary, their private missionary journeys. But he says, tell James and the brothers. And mentioning James in the same breath as the apostles points to James having assumed the leadership role already that we know he is going to exercise in Jerusalem until his death in the year 62 AD at the hands of the high priest Annas. Have we heard that name before? Not the same one. It's sort of like all the different Herods. All the high priests had either a name like Annas or Ananias or Ananus. Back in in Galatians, when Paul and uh, Barnabas meet with the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John are named. And James is named first at that time also. So James has taken an almost apostle-like position in the church. Uh, He was known as James the Just. He was, he was known as old camel knees because he did so much praying in the temple for the church. Robin was commenting on one of my daughter's Valentine's Day jokes taken from uh, the Song of Solomon. So uh, old camel knees is also you know, one of those endearing terms of the Bible. To close out our story here, Verse 17d says that after telling the church all about his escape from prison, Peter departed and left for another place. And once again, you know, you look at these words and what they're saying. Well, it did not mean that he was going to someplace else in Jerusalem. Peter knows that the Roman army would turn the city upside down searching for him. His only hope was to get out of Dodge, and he did. Now, it's interesting that this is where the Catholic Church gets him as going to uh, Rome to become the first pope. Okay? They say the other place, and it doesn't say where he went in Scripture, but this other place he went to, the Catholics maintain, is Rome. 
It's more likely, and modern, even modern Catholic theologians and all Protestants believe he went up to Antioch, which is where Barnabas and uh, Paul have just left and come down to Jerusalem from. Because in tradition, Peter was the head of the church in uh, Antioch for quite a while. So as we close out our study this morning, I see one last uh, point. The account of Peter at the door what, and the reaction of those inside as an allegory for the church. Okay, Peter's standing at the door. People inside. The apostle representing Christ knocking at the door. The excited new believer, the young excited believer, full of, full of love for Jesus, God, and Christianity, so excited she rushes away from the door to spread the news without taking care of first things first. And the older Christians inside doing the ministry of prayer without knowing exactly what to pray for and not expecting the miracle God is prepared to provide. Um, the minute I started thinking about this sermon, another account of someone standing at a door knocking occurred to me. It's Revelation three twelve through 22, and it tells us, And to the church, angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, and not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen in salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and it just brings me back to Peter at the door he's knocking at the door If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, the door needed to be opened for Peter as well. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Nothing was going to get accomplished for Peter or the church until that door was opened. All the knocking in the world. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And you know, this is often used. They pull out this one verse and say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is used much like John 3.16. It's used of to non-believers that God is saying that to them. 
God, Jesus is saying this to the church. Just as Peter is knocking on the door of the, of the home church to get in, Jesus is actually dealing with a church that doesn't pray anymore, that doesn't know that they've gone cold. Their, their prayer life is gone. Their, their worship is stale. In Peter's case, it was not. It was ongoing. But in both cases, no one knows what to pray for. The church in Jerusalem and the church in Laodicea are not entirely analogous. The church in Jerusalem was a new church, newish church, but uncertain what to pray for, but pray it did. And the church in Laodicea was established, but had lost its zeal for prayer. Neither church is expecting a miracle from God. But only one is setting itself up for one. The church that was still praying found Peter standing at the door and the other, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. The question to the weak church is, will you open the door? Will they open the door? Does Laodicea ever open the door? And actually the answer is, we don't think so. If the door is opened, Blessings unasked for will be given. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Basically, my answer to the question asked on Wednesday, it does not matter if you know what to pray for. It does not matter. Scripture says it. The Spirit understands groanings too deep for words. What do we pray for when times are tough? I think the answer, like the church in Jerusalem, is open the door to God. Pray for His will to be done. Jesus in Gethsemane asked for the cup to be passed by Him. And yet He said, not my will but thine. And I think that that's the key to our prayer. That when we pray, ask for what we want, but not our will, but thine, as Jesus said. There's not a better example in the Bible of what to pray for. When we pray, does God want to heal everybody? If God did, everybody would be healed. Does God want us to ask for it? Yeah. Because he's standing at the door knocking. And we need to open that door to him. So that, if possible, a miracle will happen. Let's pray.